Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 1919, the life of the Irish woman, Alice Morton, was upended. When her marriage broke down, her husband began a relentless campaign to destroy her reputation. In an age where Victorian morality still lingered, Alice found herself at the centre of what amounted to a sex scandal. In an act of vengeance against Alice, her husband initiated two legal proceedings. The first was a divorce case claiming Alice had committed adultery However, the second was far more devastating. This would see her husband, Sue, Alice's lover, using an archaic law known as criminal conversation that held that the act of adultery had damaged his property, in this case, his wife Alice. This would see the most private details of Alice Morton's sex life subjected to public scrutiny while a court placed a monetary value on her as a woman. However, rather than submit herself to this humiliation, Alice Morton would eventually go on the run in what is a fascinating story. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer. Sound on today's episode is by Kate Dunley. Additional narrations are from Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. The show was researched, produced and recorded by myself. If you enjoyed the show today and want to support new content like this that's freshly researched, become a supporter on patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. As a supporter, you get early access to the show. There's no adverts on the Patreon episodes either. And best of all, you get hours of bonus content. At the moment, I'm running an exclusive series with Dr. Brian Hanley on the Irish Civil War that's only available to supporters of the show. There's also my own audiobook on the Black Death in Ireland and hours of extra content as well as that. You can get all that for just a fiver a month when you sign up today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast or ACAST plus. That's patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast or ACAST plus. I've links to both in the show notes below. Finally, given the week that's in us, I hope you have a great St. Patrick's Day, whatever you're doing. By 1921, Alice Morton had become a woman with many names. 
Eighteen months earlier, she had fled her home in Derry, and since then, she had been evading a manhunt to track her down. Frequently on the move, she was always looking over her shoulder. No one back in Ireland knew where she was, or at least those who did said nothing. In April 1921, she reached the town of Lymington, somewhere that had the potential to offer her some respite from her pursuers. She didn't know a single soul, and surrounded by strangers, she walked through the streets of the port town, and no one returned a glance of recognition. This was precisely what Alice Morton wanted. As someone looking for anonymity, the port, situated in Hampshire on the south coast of England, was perfect. It was neither too big nor too small. For many in her position, a remote village in the mountains of Wales or Scotland might have seemed an ideal place to avoid unwanted attention. However, the arrival of an outsider who was vague and tight-lipped about their past would have provoked suspicion and unwanted questions. At the other end of the scale, the sprawling cities of Liverpool, London, Glasgow or Cardiff had their advantages. However, the huge communities of Irish emigrants drawn to such places presented a very real risk that Alice would randomly meet someone who would recognise her. In contrast, Lymington was neither too big nor too small. Home to 4,000 people, it enjoyed a constant flow of visitors from yachts travelling along the south coast of England and travellers arriving to catch the daily steamer to the Isle of Wight off the coast. The townsfolk were well used to tourists and travellers and paid little attention to a stranger living in their midst. Furthermore, while there were some Irish emigrants in Lymington, they were few and far between, and unless Alice Morton was extremely unlucky, she had little to fear in terms of being recognised by someone from her former life. Meanwhile, for a woman used to the finer things in life, the town of Lymington was by no means the worst place to hide out. Amenities included sea baths, restaurants, and the annual sailing regatta in August was famous. Finally, able to stop running, Alice Morton took up lodgings in a boarding house operated by two women in their late 60s and early 70s, Elizabeth Rawlings and Harriet Shepherd. Increasingly adept at subterfuge, she provided the two women a false name. By April 1921, Alice had known many names in recent years. Her legal name, Alice Morton. Her birth name, Alice Smith. But in Leamington, she settled on a new name, Mary Clements. Mary was her own middle name and Clements the surname of her lover. In a society where Victorian morality refused to relinquish its hold, she had to lie about other aspects of her life as well. She claimed her lover, George Clements, was in fact her husband. So when he visited, the two could share a bed without the boarding house owners raising objections. Over that summer of 1921, while the War of Independence raged back in Ireland, Alice Morton settled into life in Lymington. By August, Lymington was a hive of activity as preparations were underway for the annual sailing regatta. The long-awaited day, Wednesday, August 24th, saw the normally sluggish town spring to life. Crowds thronged the streets for the boat races during the day and a carnival-like atmosphere pervaded the streets that evening. For Alice, the welcome distraction of the regatta was, however, unnerving. As the population of the town swelled, the constant fear that she would hear a familiar voice call her name was heightened in the large crowds. 
However, the regatta came and went, and as the festivities drew to a close, Alice Morton's true identity remained secure and safe. However, unbeknownst to her, five days earlier, as Limington had been focused on the upcoming regatta, another woman, Etty Schwab, had slipped into the town unnoticed. This woman was, in some respects at least, similar to Alice. She too was secretive about her true identity. However, while Alice Morton had learned how to be clandestine about her life, Etty Schwab was a true professional. She was a private detective by trade who had been tracking Alice Morton for months. On August 31st, 1921, while Limington lulled back to normality, Schwab made her move and destroyed Alice Morton's seemingly idyllic life. Eddie Schwab was a woman who protected her true identity for good reason. Indeed, in the millions, perhaps billions of records from early 20th century Britain, she is little more than a shadow. Like Alice Morton, she too used many names. In some accounts, she was referred to as Etty, indicating her name may have been Harriet or Henrietta. On other occasions, she went by Katie. A photograph captured her leaving a courthouse in early 1920, but the grainy image suggests a woman that could be anywhere between 20 and 40. Her surname Schwab sheds little light on her true identity. It may have been a pseudonym, although given she lived in Britain in the immediate aftermath of the First World War, it seems unlikely she would have chosen a Germanic-sounding name in a country where bitterness towards Germans was running at an all-time high. Schwab had pursued an unusual path in life that had led her to Lymington in 1921. When huge numbers of men had been called up to serve in the armed forces at the outbreak of the First World War in 1914, the resulting labour shortage created an opportunity for many women who were able to secure jobs previously considered the preserve of men. Etty, however, had not followed the legions of women into factories and offices. Instead, in the later years of the war, she had started working for the Arrows Detective Agency. As a private detective, she was able to exploit the patriarchal post-war world. Misogyny and sexism ensured few men would suspect a woman might in fact be gathering intelligence on them, while in cases where women were the target of the investigation, a female detective proved more adept than their male colleagues. Her employer, Charles Arrow, in an autobiography, would reflect on female detectives. It is, however, when they have to approach others of their sex, that they are of the utmost service. Etty had quickly proved herself well-suited to the work. In 1919, she was centrally involved in a case which prevented a major robbery. Her intelligence proved central when the case went before the courts the following year. However, despite pushing the boundaries of the patriarchal society of the time, Etty Schwab was no feminist. Her work, on occasion, involved tracking down women who had left their husbands for one reason or another. Regardless of whether the women she tracked had fled abuse, Schwab set about her job with cold efficiency. She had been working for the Arrows Detective Agency around three years when she had been tasked with finding Alice Morton. The case was challenging. Morton had fled the house she shared with her husband, in Antrim in the summer of 1919. After spending a few months with her parents in Derry, she had then vanished without a trace. While Alice successfully evaded her pursuers for nearly two years, 
Schwab had eventually found the woman. What evidence had led her to Lymington was never fully revealed, but it mattered little. Once the search was narrowed to the seaside town, it hadn't taken long. Discreet inquiries about an Irish woman living in the town eventually brought her to the boarding house where Morton was staying. Once she had positively identified Morton, she contacted solicitors in Belfast who dispatched a clerk named McConkie to Limington. He would record everything that transpired when Schwab made her move and confronted Morton. He would also take sworn statements from other witnesses. This would all be used in later court cases. On August 31st, Schwab was ready. The legal clerk had arrived and the two marched up to the boarding house and demanded to see Alice Morton. Eddie Schwab had seen this play out a thousand times before. McConkie initially did the talking and got nowhere. Alice simply refused to see him. She had been on the run for years and simply demanding that she reveal her true identity was never likely to work. Schwab then stepped forward and started talking. She was able to present herself as less threatening and Morton relented and agreed to see her. However, if Alice Morton was disarmed by the fact that Etty Schwab was a woman, this was a grave error. Schwab was extremely effective and unmoved by Alice Morton's desperation. When Schwab produced a photograph she had of Morton, Alice knew the game was up. She had been found. In her desperation, Morton begged and pleaded her case with the detective. She told Schwab how she had fled an abusive husband, but unperturbed, Schwab set about her business. She produced legal papers summoning Alice Morton to a divorce case in Dublin. And then, perhaps even more disastrously, she also had papers to serve on her lover, who was expected to return to Lymington later that day. These papers summoned the man, George Clements, to face a trial of criminal conversation. This would see Clements sued by Alice's former husband for having sex with his wife. The law considered Alice to be the property of her husband and by sleeping with Alice, Clements had thereby, under the law, damaged her husband's property. While Clements may have been the one named in the case, it was Alice who was the one who would really be on trial. For Alice, who had already endured one of these cases two years earlier, she knew what to expect. It would be extremely humiliating. To face a second such case in a lifetime was nothing short of devastating. The most minute details of her private life, including her sex life, would be shared with the world. A legal team would try and tear her to shreds. Not for the first time she rued the day she had ever met the man who was technically her husband, Robert Morton. Like any story, the roots of the road that had led Alice Morton to that fateful August day in Nymington had many starting points, but her wedding to Robert Morton loomed large over the course of events. This had seen her leave her home in Derry and move to her husband's house in Ballymena, County Antrim. Alice's life up to that point had been one of extreme privilege. Her father, Arthur Smith, was the son of a rector and landlord who lived in Ballanderry House. Her mother's father was the Protestant Dean of Derry. Her parents had married in 1884, but given her father Arthur was pursuing a military career at the time, they didn't start a family for five years. By the late 1880s, however, he had begun several postings in various Navy installations outside London, 
and his wife was able to join him. Alice was born in 1891 when they were living at Gravesend in Kent. During her early years, the family continued to move following her father's commissions, living for a time in Glasgow. When her grandfather Mitchell Smith died in April 1894, her father resigned from the army and retired on a pension of £300 to run the family estate. Their new home at Ballantemple House was an 18-roomed mansion with a live-in staff and the family expanded to include five children. Alice already had two older siblings, a brother, Arthur, and a sister, Helen Frances, but they were joined by two younger sisters, Cecil and Barbara. Even though Alice was the third eldest of the Smith children, she had been the first to marry. The match to a man called Robert Morton seemed perfect at the time. Although the Mortons might have been what the Smiths considered new money, they were immensely wealthy. They had a major milling business in Ballymena, outside Belfast, and when her husband's grandfather had died in 1863, he had left a fortune of £16,000 and a thriving business. When Alice had married Robert Morton, it was a widely celebrated union, with a full picture of the bridal party printed in the local press. After the wedding, the couple moved to the Morton family home, Ornmore House, a 16-roomed building at the outskirts of Ballymena. The family had an extensive staff that included maids, servants and a chauffeur. And in the early years of the marriage, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Alice fell pregnant within a few months and she gave birth to a daughter, Frances, who was born in the summer of 1914. She was pregnant again around Christmas 1915 and a son, Nathaniel, was born in September 1916. During that fateful year, the Mortons were far removed from the political upheaval that gripped Ireland. The tumult of the Easter Rising in Dublin was a world away from the Unionist heartland around Ballymena. The community was, however, gripped by a local scandal involving a neighbouring landowner, Captain Jack White of Brochane. Despite his wealthy Protestant upbringing, White was an ardent socialist. While he hadn't participated in the Dublin Rising, he had tried to organise a strike of Welsh miners to save the lives of the condemned leaders. This had failed and White was imprisoned but the affair provoked a major scandal that lasted months back in Antrim. However, three years later, a scandal surrounding Alice Morton would eclipse that of the radical Jack White. Whatever the nature of the early days of their marriage, the relationship between Alice Morton and her husband became increasingly difficult in the later years of the First World War. Robert Morton revealed himself to be an abusive man, Alice would never specify the full details in public, only making references to his temper and the treatment she received. It was in this context of an increasingly difficult married life that Alice developed a relationship with a local soldier, Captain Robert Hansen. Although he was from the town of Larne, 20 miles away, he was, however, distantly related to Alice's husband and more closely related to a neighbouring family in Ballymena, the Simpsons, where he spent a considerable amount of his time. The relationship between Alice and the soldier had started completely innocuously. As was common for the age, Alice began writing letters to Hansen to comfort him and break the isolation he faced when he was serving on the front in the First World War. Initially, his correspondence was even something she would share on occasion with her husband. In the later stages of the war, however, the nature of their relationship became more intimate. Increasingly alienated, from her abusive husband, 
the soldier Captain Hansen began to visit Alice at Ornmore House when he was home at leave. These visits began to coincide also with times when her husband was not at home. This was the first step into what became an intimate relationship, although how intimate would be something that would ultimately be decided in a court. What was clear though is that by later 1918, the two could no longer claim that they were just friends. They were communicating on an almost daily basis. The soldier was addressing Alice as... She returned the sentiment addressing him as... Robbie, my darling. To provide context, when Alice referred to her husband, she addressed him in the more formal manner. My dearest Bertie. Alice's letters to Captain Hansen also contained flirtatious cryptograms. These were riddles where she sent the first letter of each word in a sentence to Hansen and he had to guess what the sentence was. Alice's cryptograms, however, were letters such as CYK and SWAK, which meant Consider yourself kissed and Sealed with a kiss. In September 1918, Robert Morton, Alice's husband, became aware that his wife was exchanging letters of this nature with the soldier, Robert Hansen. He had become suspicious when Alice refused to share the contents of one particular letter and he had then intercepted their correspondence, one of which included a letter where he had signed off with the words With tons and tons of love from yours always, Robbie. After this, Robert Morton brought this letter to the attention of Captain Hansen's father, who was a Protestant minister in Larne, and he subsequently raised the matter with his son. Hansen had no option but to admit the affair. Back at Ornmore House, Robert Morton threatened to throw Alice out of the family home, but then did not follow through on the threat. Now, Despite this rancour, events in the following weeks and months took a surprising course of action. Alice Morton and Captain Hansen continued to see each other and while Robert Morton had professed outrage, he was unquestionably still aware the relationship continued in some form or another. Indeed, when World War I ended in November 1918, Captain Hansen returned home permanently and Alice began to spend increasing amounts of time with the soldier and made little attempt to hide this. They went for walks together around the town of Ballymena and danced together in several local houses. Precisely what was happening at this point is unclear. There was no question the relationship had turned physical insofar as the two were kissing at this point. It was later asserted in court that Morton was not put out by their relationship and had even thrown his wife in Captain Hansen's way, as one barrister had put it. As we will see, this may not have been quite true, but the affair was not a secret, nor was Morton that enraged by it evidently. On at least one occasion at a local dance, he found Alice alone with Captain Hansen, but his reaction was merely to talk to the soldier about the architecture of the house the dance took place in. Meanwhile, the relationship between Alice and her husband, Robert Morton, was, unsurprisingly, in considerable difficulty. Alice would later make references to his temper and his poor treatment of her, and as we have seen, he was, to one degree or another, disinterested in the fact that she was becoming closer and closer to the soldier. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. The situation reached a breaking point of sorts in May 1919 when Alice left the family home to bring the couple's children to visit her parents in County Derry. A couple of days later, she wrote to her husband, informing him she would not be coming back, citing his abuse as the reason. It's worth stating at this point she did not elope with Captain Hansen, but instead moved home to her parents' house. Now, outraged by this act, Robert Morton wasted no time. He didn't attempt to mediate with his wife, but instead went for what might be considered the nuclear option by approaching a firm of Belfast solicitors, Alexander and Son. In a move that seems to have been motivated more by vengeance than anything else, he initiated two legal cases. The first was a divorce proceeding, claiming Alice had been unfaithful. However, while Alice was not the defendant in the second case, it was unquestionably the most damaging of the two. Her husband, Robert Morton, took a suit of criminal conversation against Captain Hansen, Under the law of the time, Alice Morton was considered the property of her husband and Captain Hansen was going to be sued for damaging her husband's goods by having an affair with Alice. In Alice's case, her husband Robert claimed she had been devalued to the tune of £5,000. This was a huge sum of money for the time, but it doesn't seem to have reflected how the man felt about his wife. He was probably setting out to financially ruin Hansen, it would seem. However, there's no doubt the real victim in this case was Alice herself. She was going to be the centre of this trial. To prove the case, Robert Morton would have to demonstrate to the court that she had had a sexual relationship with a soldier, Hansen. This meant her sex life would be poured over in minute detail. 
Humiliating as this would be today, it was magnified by the conservative climate of the 1920s where sex was not discussed in public. Bad as this was, the case could potentially take an even worse course. While both Alice and Robert Hansen denied they had ever had sex, if it looked like Alice's husband was winning the case, that could lead Hansen to turn on Alice. Rather than claim he had never had sex with the woman, he might try and claim she was a person of low character and morals and thereby had no value. This would lower any fine he would potentially have to pay. This strategy, used in similar cases, saw the women at the centre of these criminal conversation trials humiliated and every last detail about them printed in the papers. The lengths defence lawyers would go in this regard knew no bounds. In one case dating to the 1970s, yes, this legislation remained on the Irish statute books until 1981. A defence counsel would describe a woman as completely worthless in an effort to claim she was of little value. Women, it goes without saying, were unable to take an action of this nature against their husbands. In 1919, however, the legal teams wasted no time in beginning these proceedings and they opened in Dublin in July of that year, only two months after Alice had left the family home in Ballymena and returned to her parents. As is common, the opening day was consumed by legal wrangling. The case was ultimately moved to Belfast, while judges decided to hear the case of criminal conversation first as its outcome would more or less settle the divorce case. From the moment Robert Morton's legal team outlined their case, it was clear it was ultimately Alice who was on trial in the suit of criminal conversation against Captain Robert Hansen. In a packed courtroom, the legal team presented Alice and Captain Hansen as immoral when they said, This case will throw a light on those two people. That will be a revelation to all right-thinking people. Morton's barristers began their case by establishing without doubt Alice had had an affair with the soldier by reading Captain Robert Hansen's letter of apology to Robert Morton for having the affair. Don't blame Alice because the fault is mine, not hers. Although you don't know it, I wrote a letter to her about a week ago telling her the whole thing was wrong and would have to stop. I'm very sorry if I have caused you or Alice trouble. I know quite well that I am very much in the wrong. I fell in love with Alice. I shouldn't have done it, but I could not help it. But it absolutely stopped before you called on father. While this confirmed feelings between Alice and the soldier, to prove the case of criminal conversation, the legal team would have to prove the pair had also had a sexual relationship. While the soldier and Alice both denied this, Robert Morton presented evidence he claimed confirmed that the two had slept together on the night of August 8th, 1918. This was where the case got extremely humiliating for Alice. On August 8th, Robert Morton had left the family home, Ornmore House, to travel to Cushendale some 25 miles away on business where he stayed overnight. After his departure, Alice decided to invite several people to Ornmore House. These included members of the Simpson family, the common connection between the Mortons and Captain Hansen. Indeed, Hansen was staying with the Simpsons at the time, so he, his sister and his mother also received an invite. The gathering was ultimately a pretty sedate affair. They played bridge, followed by some fortune telling. Captain Hansen's sister played the piano while Alice herself sang a tune. The first to leave was Captain Hansen's mother and the relatives, the Simpsons, who he was staying with. 
After they departed around 11.30, it was not long afterwards that Alice would walk the two final guests, Captain Hanson himself and his sister, about 50 yards down the driveway from her house. As Alice returned to walk home, Captain Hanson said he would accompany her to her door. Hanson then claimed he bid Alice goodnight at that point, turned heel, ran down the avenue and caught up with his relatives about 50 yards outside Ornmore House. He then claimed he went back to his uncle's house where he remained in the presence of his relations until 2.30 in the morning before going to bed, where he remained alone until the following day. That was what he claimed. Robert Morton's legal team, however, presented a very different version of events based on an eyewitness who testified the soldier had in fact returned to Orenmore House, climbed in Alice's bedroom window and remained there for several hours. If proven, this would be accepted as evidence the couple had had a sexual relationship. The witness was a man called Robert McCallion, the Morton's chauffeur. When he took the stand in Belfast, his evidence was nothing short of sensational. He claimed, as was his custom when Robert Morton was away, he patrolled the grounds of Ornmore House at 1.30am. During these rounds, he saw Alice Morton, Captain Hanson and his sister leave the house as she walked them down the avenue. When Hanson walked Alice back to her front door, McCallion claimed the soldier put his arm around Alice, kissed her and she then said, Robbie, are you coming? The implication here was that she was inviting him back to the house. McCallion, now expecting something untoward to happen, positioned himself behind a tree that was about 25 feet from Alice's bedroom window. He claimed Hansen reappeared some time later and approached Alice's window, which he attempted to open, making considerable noise. This was followed by a farcical scene. The window was locked, so Hansen approached a second window and after failing to hoist himself in, he pushed himself up leaning on a heavy creeper growing along the side of the house, which he damaged in the process. At this point, McCallion claimed Hanson actually got stuck in the window, but eventually did make it into Alice's bedroom, where it was claimed he remained until 4am. The chauffeur McCallion had remained outside the window the entire time and saw him leave. The following morning, he also claimed he looked at the creeper, which was damaged, and he showed it to Bella Baskin, the nurse who worked for the Mortons and minded their children. Baskin herself would also take the stand and testify that she had heard a knock or a noise at Alice's window during the night. And in what was arguably some of the most damning evidence, she also claimed that Alice had acted in an unusual manner the following morning by coming into the nursery early and engaging Baskin in a conversation about the noises the night before. This, it was implied, was done to discern if the nurse had heard anything. The case, however, in many ways, hinged on Alice's own testimony. She took the stand on Monday, July the 28th, 1919. No matter what she said, this was going to be the centrepiece of the trial, where she would be publicly humiliated and made to answer questions about her private life in a trial to assess her monetary value. She was not actually called to the stand by her husband's legal team, but instead by Captain Hansen's defence team. He may have been her lover, but with £5,000 at stake, his legal representatives were interested in running down Alice's value as a person and a wife. This explains their curious line of questioning, which you're about to hear. Alice was attacked on all sides, 
leaving her in an invidious position. Captain Hansen's defence counsel began. Wouldn't you think that a woman would require to be deeply in love to write three times to him in four days? I don't know. The barrister pressed. He began his letters to you, Alice, my darling. We would be interested to know how you started yours. Perhaps with Robbie, my darling. Yes. You addressed your husband, my dearest Bertie. And it was to Captain Hansen, Robbie, my darling. Alice didn't respond. And the barrister continued in what I assume was an attempt to portray Alice as a poor wife who broke her honour and was disloyal. In reference to her continuing to meet Hansen even after her husband had become aware, the barrister said, Did you give him your word of honour? I said I would not refuse to speak to the Hansons because if I went to the Simpsons, I was likely to speak to them. They were desperate to paint her as a bad wife in these lines. So you defied him then? No. I said I would not refuse to speak to them, but I would not write to Captain Hansen. This led to a bizarre interaction where the prosecution asked Alice about an incident where her husband had seen her with Captain Hansen in January 1919. The line of attack again is presumably to claim that Robert Morton did not really value his wife. Did your husband see you with Hansen on the Galgorm Road in January after that? Yes. You felt at liberty to speak to Captain Hansen? Yes. And to kiss him? I did not say I would not. Do you suggest to the jury your husband allowed you to reserve the right to speak to and kiss the man to whom he objected? I suppose he didn't. Did you realise that at the time? Alice didn't respond to this question. Finally, when she was pressed on her attitude towards Hansen and her husband, Alice claimed, I like Captain Hansen better than I like my husband now. You are fonder of Captain Hansen than of your husband. Yes. The whole interaction was deeply humiliating. Unsurprisingly, Captain Hansen's defence team didn't ask her about the night where the two had supposedly slept together. As the case ran on, two clear sides had emerged. No one doubted the couple had developed some form of relationship, but evidence was divided as to whether the couple had had a sexual relationship. The judge seems to have leaned in favour of Alice and Hansen based on this summation. It strikes me as rather strange that if the woman had arranged with him to go back into her bedroom, she had made no arrangements for him and he had to shake the windows and make noise. While it was very possible the two did sleep together, to focus completely on this point misses the purpose of the case. It was very much about humiliating and controlling Alice. In their summation, Robert Morton's defence team launched into a humiliating attack on Alice and women in general when they said, One of the greatest tragedies of war lies in the number of men killed, but also in the number of women degraded, demoralised and ruined by the wave of looseness and vice passing over the land. It seemed as if the Ten Commandments were to be wiped out, and it was no longer to be said, Thou shall not commit adultery. The jury retired at 12.55 on July the 29th after a four-day trial. They returned after just an hour and the result was catastrophic for Alice. They could not reach a verdict. The whole case would have to be heard again before another jury. With the prospect of another 
almost ritualistic humiliation facing her. Alice fled Ireland in later 1919, before the second trial opened. Where she spent the following year and a half is unclear, but as we've heard, she was living in Nymington from around April 1921. She is recorded in the 1921 census in the town as Mary Clements. In her absence, the second trial went ahead in March 1920, and the jury on this occasion asked to see the house. This gave them a better insight into the layout of the rooms. On this occasion, when all the evidence was presented, and Alice had been humiliated for a second time, on this occasion in her absence, the jury again could not agree. Despite growing evidence that he would never find a court to find decisively in his favour, Robert Morton relentlessly continued his pursuit of his wife. While he was preparing for a third trial, the Arrows Detective Agency was busy looking for Alice. They, as we saw, found her eventually in August 1921. While the trial against Captain Robert Hansen had seemed almost impossible to win, the evidence that Etty Schwab gathered in Limington made a case of criminal conversation against Alice's lover in the town, George Clements, an almost open-shut case. Even though Alice had not seen Robert Morton in over 18 months and hadn't lived with him for over two years, she was still technically considered his wife in the eyes of the law. So when she started a new relationship with George Clements, Robert Morton could claim it was an affair and Clements was liable to face a suit of criminal conversation. Therefore, in January 1922, Morton dropped the case of criminal conversation against Captain Robert Hansen, which appeared impossible to prove. Instead, he initiated new proceedings against George Clements. While Alice and Clements denied the charge, they did not appear in person in a trial held in Dublin. Etty Schwab did travel from England. She testified as to what she had seen in Limington and the living arrangements where Alice and Clements shared a room. This was supported by the legal clerk, McConkie. The jury unsurprisingly found in Robert Morton's favour. Alice was his wife and under the law his property. George Clements had slept with Alice and therefore he was judged to owe Morton £500. The same day the divorce case was heard. It was equally matter of fact. The divorce was granted, but Robert Morton was not yet finished in his mistreatment of Alice. All divorce cases had to be ratified by the House of Lords where specific terms could be added. When Morton's case came before the Lords in late March 1922, Robert Morton tried to impose several harsh provisions on his wife. One included the demand that Alice, and I quote, live a chaste life and shall remain unmarried before she could access shared wealth the couple had owned. Perhaps the most vicious provision was the seventh and final clause Robert Morton sought to insert into the divorce. It demanded that the House of Lords would decree that any marriage between Alice and George Clements would be considered illegal and their children therefore would be, and the quote is worth hearing on this, The children shall be considered illegitimate and subject to all the disabilities, privation and restrictions which any child or children born out of lawful wedlock is. It seems Robert Morton's only motive was revenge. The Lords did strike out these two clauses relating to chastity and the children. Three days later, on March 31st, 1922, the divorce was finally passed. While the case was clearly designed to destroy Alice Morton, she did rebuild a life for herself. 
A year later, in early 1923, she married George Clements. The couple had their own family, although George died relatively young in 1936. She also appears to have had a relationship with her own family, something which the scandal must have tested given her parents were deeply conservative. She attended her father's funeral in 1936. At the outbreak of the Second World War, she was living in the town of Cookfield in Sussex with her sister and her children in a house called The Nook, considerably smaller than the houses where she had grown up in or where she had had her own children. When Alice Morton died is unclear. As mentioned earlier in the episode, criminal conversation remained on the Irish statute books and continued to be used right through the 20th century. In one particularly notorious case from the 1970s, a judge referred to a woman as, and I quote, something that the husband owned and you compensate him for the value of the wife he has lost, just as you compensate him for a thoroughbred mare or cow. After a lengthy campaign by feminist organisations, criminal conversation was finally abolished from the Irish statute books in 1981. That's where I'm leaving it for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to access those hours of additional exclusive content, become a supporter today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast or ACAST plus. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there's links to both of them in the show notes below. Until next time, Sloan. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.